Welcome to The Yoga Room. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Munoz, a yoga therapist and researcher studying and applying the tools of yoga to help transform the lives of people living with arthritis and related conditions. In this podcast, we'll explore the application of yoga to daily life, what the research shows, what real people have experienced, and how to ensure that yoga in its many forms is safe, accessible, practical, and relevant. You'll hear from people living with arthritis, yoga experts, healthcare professionals, and scientists who work in this space. Whether you're a yoga professional, a person living with a chronic condition, or someone who cares for those who do, we hope you'll walk away from each episode with a useful nugget of information or insight. Perhaps even think of this episode as a little bit of self-care. Whether you're listening in the car, the shower, on a walk, or in bed during a flare, we hope our sharing nourishes you in some way. As we begin, take a long, deep breath and consider setting an intention to have an open mind, to be fully present, to discover something new, to trust that you're hearing exactly what will serve you today and beyond. And with that, let's get on with the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Yoga Room, the podcast where we explore all aspects of yoga philosophy and practice and how they pertain to life with arthritis in its many forms. I am so excited uh, for our guest today, who I have known professionally for, I don't even know how many years. I think my children were small when I first met Neil, and now they are not. Uh, And it has been a pleasure to know him and um, to get to know him better over the years. And really to see the incredible work that he's doing that has really inspired me in um, how he communicates about pain and pain management and a a whole person approach that is strongly evidence-based, but also kind of pushing the boundaries of the way that most people think about pain and pain management. So I'll um, introduce him formally and then we'll get into it together. So Neil is a physical therapist, yoga therapist, author, researcher, adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia, faculty in three IAYT accredited yoga therapy programs. So those are programs accredited with the International Association of Yoga Therapists, board member for the IAYT and pain care advocate. He conducts research into the effects of yoga on veterans with chronic pain and on people with osteoarthritis. Neil is the recipient of awards honoring his work in pain care, patient education, and physiotherapy, and works closely with Canadian nonprofit organizations focused on decreasing the impact of pain on society. You're speaking my language. He co-authored Yoga and Science in Pain Care in 2019, which is um, a book that I was um, honored to be able to contribute to as well. He also authored the patient education ebook, Understand Pain, Live Well Again, in 2008. And he's a lead contributor to many free patient resources. And we will share in the show notes for today his website, which is 
full of information and resources, um, and that's paincareaware.com. So Neil, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Stephanie. It's always, always great to talk about these topics. Yeah, absolutely. So Neil, um, can you start off just by telling us how you were introduced to yoga? You know, share your yoga journey with us. Okay. Um, so my yoga journey actually started outside of yoga in meditation. Um, I um, I would have some uh, had some experiences when I was young that I would say would be you know now I would say sort of a spiritual experience, and um, even when I was in university I started to sort of you know dabble in some meditation stuff looking for that again. And um, then had started doing some Vipassana meditation and when I moved to Vancouver in 1997. Um, and um, Vancouver being such a yoga hotspot, um, I, people kept on saying, hey, well, if you like meditation, you're a physical therapist, you gotta like yoga. And I really didn't know much about yoga at all. Um, anyway, so I went to a class and luckily had an amazing uh, first class teacher and had a very similar spiritual experience to what I had had as a youth. And um, it just sort of dragged me in because says, hey, this is really cool. I get to actually meditate and move at the same time. Because uh, I'm, um, I've, you know, I've been a long distance cyclist and, and runner. Um, so I, I love movement. So, and right about that time is when I started working this pain management center. Um, and what was really mind blowing, it was, was, seeing everything that we did in the pain management center and seeing the the stuff that looked like the same stuff in yoga right because you know i had a, a teacher who was very much into teaching about yoga while he was teaching a, a vinyasa class of all things right and it was just amazing so anyway i saw these similarities and that just that just drew me in even more so that's really interesting, Neil, because, you know, in um, the work that we do at Yoga for Arthritis, we talk a lot about how oftentimes asana is the way into yoga for people, especially people who are seeking relief from chronic pain um, or who are seeking stress management and they're or just seeking general health and well-being. The notion is that it's the physical postures of yoga that are going to be helpful. And it's only after that inroad through the physical practices that people start to realize, oh, actually, the breathing really matters. And the mindfulness is having such an impact on the way that I handle stressors and the way I show up in my life. And now I'm actually thinking about my disease differently because I am applying the philosophy and this meditation stuff it seems to have something in it, you know, if I can get into a comfortable position in order to do it. So you kind of came the other way where you started off with more subtle practices and then moved into the asana practice. But you, so at that point, and I also just want to make a plug for British Columbia. For anyone who has not been there, I have a lot of family in British Columbia and it is one of my favorite places. So if you haven't already, please try to get there for a visit. It's lovely. Um, so you were already a physiotherapist, which in the States we call a physical therapist. So why physiotherapy? And then how did you end up in pain care specifically? 
Great. Um, really taking me back here. So um, I actually trained to be a, a phys ed teacher first. I intended oh. to be a coach. Okay. Uh, and uh, while I was in university, when we were actually taking anatomy, um, our the phys ed class took anatomy with nursing and with physical therapy and OT, occupational therapy. Mm-hmm. And I've never heard of those two things before. Oh, okay. It never crossed my brain at all. Um, and um, I really love the anatomy stuff. And so I was hanging around the anatomy lab and heard about these other things and actually originally um, applied to be an occupational therapist. Hmm. And, um, hey, Neil, can you, can you explain, and not everybody knows what occupational therapy is. Can you explain that? Because it is also relevant to pain care. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the beauty about occupational therapy is it it is in both the physical realm, but also the psycho-emotional and, and spiritual realm as well. I mean, because the, the idea of finding meaningful functional tasks to work on right. and finding purpose in life and uh, coping with stress and, and emotions are a big, big piece of, of occupational therapy. And it sort of attracted me that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever happened in my when I went to these initial interviews with the faculty when I was applying, um, what they heard was somebody who should go into physical therapy. <laughs> okay. And so I'm just okay. Well, if you guys are all telling me that, okay, I'll do that. Um, and the the movement into pain, um, I had some experiences in the first year or so of being a physical therapist of people telling me about pain mm-hmm. that I couldn't explain. And mm-hmm. so. And there was, I mean, this is 1985. So there's one book on pain, the textbook of pain, right? Mel Zach and Wall's basically philosophy book. Yeah. Uh, And there's there's no courses, there's nothing. And apparently I did something sort of odd. Um, I believe what the patient said had to be true and that what I (laughs) did in school must have been wrong. (laughs) That's a novel approach. Yeah. Yeah. And, And I guess... In life, often when you know we have these worldviews or these conceptualizations of something like pain, mm-hmm. and when someone comes along and tells us something that doesn't match that, mm-hmm. what, we, what apparently we do is we decide, okay, you're an outlier. This is how mm. pain works, but you're just a different. And I had a few people who were just totally outliers. But there are a lot of outliers. <laughs> and yeah, so that's what got me interested in it. And I just started to pay attention more yeah, uh, and just started to gravitate more and working with people who had musculoskeletal pain that wasn't going away. Mm-hmm. And then after I got to Vancouver, I had the opportunity to actually um, go and uh, work in a complex chronic pain management center. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other really cool thing about being in Vancouver was in in 2002, um, and for a few years after that, Lorimer mostly kept on showing up um, and doing lectures. Okay. So he's doing all his research, sort of pre-explained pain and, you know, starting to work with David Butler. And, and this, this guy just sort of, you know, shows up talking about pain. I'm like, hey, I got to go to that. Um, and so I got to sort of learn, learn those things really aren't really on it as well. But really, the, the, what brought me in and what interested me the most was um, I didn't know what to do. And there had to be answers because I was also hearing stories of people who had pain and it went away in ways that I couldn't explain. Um, in addition, I was working with a, a physician. Could, could you give me an example of that? Oh, okay. What do so, you mean by uh, unexplained? Okay. Yeah. So there was a, a physiatrist working at the hospital. And we had the sports medicine clinic. 
And so we'd be seeing these fairly high-level athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and this physiatrist is also the, the doctor who brought the acupuncture foundation to Canada. Oh, okay. So he happened to be in this hospital that I was working in. And sometimes we'd be doing all our, our stuff with athletes and the people wouldn't be getting better. They'd be stuck. And so we asked Joe, Dr. Wong, to come and, and have a look. And he would do this assessment, right? He'd be doing his traditional Chinese medicine assessment as well as the medical assessment. And of course, I'd be sitting there going, what is this? Mm-hmm. And then he'd, you know, sometimes he'd use um, acupuncture needles and other times he'd use moxa on the end and burn it. Or other times he'd be doing, you know, cupping and other stuff. And people who the physiotherapy hadn't been able to make them get better, they got better doing these things. Mm-hmm. This, this, didn't match with anything that I learned in school. It didn't fit. Right. Right. It was operating from a different explanatory model or underlying framework. Yeah. And of course, we also would see people um, occasionally see people who had an injury and you'd be looking at the person thinking like, why doesn't that hurt? Mm, So the opposite. Yeah. Right. I mean, there was a there's a fellow that I saw, um, and it's a bit of a long story, but it was this this older fellow who was in his 80s, and he was sent in, and the referral form just said that he had a sprained left ankle. Mm-hmm. Anyway, when he came in, um, <clears throat> he had this other issue going on. The other issue was an old issue. He had had a hip replacement, and his body had rejected the metal. Oh, okay. And so they had to take it out and they put in the best alloy that they could. Like this is before titanium, of course, right? Right. Um, and so, but then his, they put him on immunosuppressant drugs and everything, but his body still rejected the second one. Mm. And so they had to actually take it out. And so when they do each of those take it out surgeries, they have to take out some of the femur with it. And so he's okay. now got a femur that's about half the length. Oh, geez. <laughs> and, and so, and he's, he's using a cane. So they, they, they sort of, in his words, they fashioned a sheath inside my thigh. So if I do put all my weight on that leg, the bone will actually slide up through the tissue of my thigh. Oh my gosh. With my, the, the plastic acetabulum cup they put in there. He's the the acetabulum is the hip socket. The hip socket, right? Yeah. yeah. So he um, he says, you know, I don't really do that. I walk around with a cane. <laughs> I was seeing him because he sprained the ankle of the good leg. Right. <laughs> Understandably. <laughs> And this one was particularly odd because when I went to assess his sprained ankle, it was like he, at the, sorry, at the time I didn't know the language, but it's mm-hmm. a highly sensitized thing going on there. There mm-hmm. was no swelling. There was no redness. There was none of that stuff, but he could hardly tolerate touch and mm-hmm. hardly tolerate movement at all. Right. But then this other leg with this thing that <laughs> in my mind should have hurt a lot more, he yeah. had no pain from it. Right. 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 And we know, um, you know, in the research on osteoarthritis of the knee, for example, there is essentially no correlation between tissue damage and pain severity. So people who have very severe degradation of their knee tissue may have very little pain. And then there are other people who have very little tissue loss and have a lot of pain, which I think is really hopeful because it means if these two things are independent, you can change pain without changing anything about the tissue. Exactly. And that's not what we learned in school. Right. And, and I think to me, that was the really the shocker of 
wow, there's more to this. And of course, those other experiences that I had in life already told me that like the body and the mind and the spirit were all important, not, not just anatomy. And then I started, you know, I went through school and I learned so much. The focus was on anatomy, anatomy, pathology, pathology. Right. And, and I have the same reaction to this as you is that this is so hopeful. Right. I mean, if we can, if we can change pain by changing, you know, what's happening in the body tissues, which we can change somewhat, but also by changing but the way the protection mechanisms of the body respond right. and the way yeah. we think and the way we emote and, and how we lead our life. I mean, that, that opens up so many doors. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of systemic forms of arthritis, it is important to address the underlying pathology to avoid progression and future damage, et cetera. But for other things like osteoarthritis, as an example, like chronic low back pain, um, it's really just symptom management oftentimes. And because there is no cure aside from replacing the joint, you know, if it gets to that point. So if there is no pain, there is almost nothing further necessary you know we're treating we're treating pain because it limits function mm -hmm. retreat right that's all of all of the management of knee osteoarthritis is for people to be able to function and have a higher quality of life with this disease that can't be reversed right. can't be cured right um so you are you're a physiotherapist you're also a yoga therapist so can you talk about the whole package of yoga? So, you know, we know that it's possible for asana to be used kind of like physio, where we're trying to make changes in, you know, the balance of strength and address weakness in certain areas and postural issues, all that can affect the joint tissue. But there's a whole lot more to yoga that can affect pain aside from those structural tools. So can you talk about, I know it's a giant question. We could probably talk for an hour just about that, but yeah. what are, what's your philosophy about how yoga affects pain? Great. Um, I guess I want to start with, it would be easier for me if I start a little bit with some of the, to say that the research says yeah sure go for it so the research says when we um not talking about specifically with people who have pain um or disease that movement itself is hypoalgesic that movement changes mm -hmm. the chemistry of the body so that it, it sort of shifts us over to that anti-inflammatory stuff that that pain modulation or the, the chemistry that will um turn down pain so movement hurts less right um, and it's one of those interesting things, right? If you're not moving for a while, like, you know, say something Movement happens, hurts more, right? Yeah, it can it hurt to move. to move for a while. Right. right. And that's, you know, we, we now have some good evidence to say that when you start to increase your activity, the pro-inflammatory chemistry of your body starts to increase for, for a couple of weeks until right. you start to maintain this new level. Which, which also, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Neil, but, you know, adapting practices so that you're moving like the more you can decrease the pain that you experience with movement, you can optimize the anti-inflammatory properties of movement 
without experiencing as much of the acute pain of movement. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so in the, in the in it's like the body has this protective response when you first start to increase activity, but then it's like, oh, hey, this is good almost yeah. right change the chemistry and and you know we could go through pretty much every aspect of our existence and see the positive benefits of movement for most people right um, the, the right movement yes yes and so we also see if you look then at at uh, the research around yoga for people with chronic pain what you typically see in the the research and then the meta-analyses that are done um, it shows that um, practicing yoga, usually they're doing two classes a week and people are doing one or two home sessions a mm -hmm. week. And usually for that eight weeks up to 12 weeks long period is, is what the research usually looks at. That that amount of practicing mostly in asana or movement-based, not mm -hmm. focusing on a lot of the other pieces even in there, that, that you actually see uh, mild to moderate benefits across the different realms of our existence. So you see mm -hmm. mild to moderate benefits in our ease of movement or range of motion and, and strength. You see mild to moderate benefits in mental health. Um, usually mild to moderate benefits in things like sleep. And if right. people are taking like pain meds, often there's a shift in those. So you, right. it's this really- and quality of life. Overall. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you see this thing that when you say mild to moderate benefits, everyone's all, well, Right, but it does. Yeah, but I'll take it. Right. <laughs> I'll take mild yeah. to moderate benefits over none. <laughs> right. So, you know, we're talking is something that's relatively inexpensive, has, according to the very research, low risk. very low adverse yeah. effects. Right. And it gets these effects across. So, so Neil, can I challenge you? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think it's interesting because you say you are right that most of these yoga interventions are asana based. And I think that there is, um, as a researcher and someone who like designs research protocols for yoga, there's a whole lot that happens in a yoga class that is not the protocol. And many yoga teachers are infusing the asana sequence with when to breathe in and when to breathe out with, you know, body awareness cues, with mindfulness cues. And so even an asana focused practice probably has some other elements that we're not really measuring. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's like a challenge out there to all the researchers. It's like, I mean, the, really the only way that we can sort this out is video the class right so other people can see what see and hear what's happening um anyway it, and, and to build that into the protocol like i would be fascinated by like a true asana only practice versus a yoga practice that is inclusive of asana right so like what happens if we're teaching the asana just for movement's sake versus teaching the asana as a yoga practice, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Because if you specifically looked at some of the research where they've used Iyengar yoga, mm -hmm. newbies in Iyengar yoga, you really hear this very physical, physical alignment-based focus because that's just the, the way the right. system works. Um, and sometimes, sometimes in yin, because they've also looked at yin yoga, right? Um, and sometimes the message there is also very physical alignment or, or 
Mechanic. But it can also be like surrender yes. and right. right. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so um okay, so this gets yeah. this gets at though, you know, what what is it that yoga right that yoga how does yoga help? Um it's almost like need to add a list, right? So I mean right. I, I think um yoga helps because of the um different breathing techniques that we provide people we've got some basic science to say there's some benefit in terms of pain right um, you know, even rhythmic breathing in one research study was producing more serotonin um, and helping people they believed that that was the reason why they had less response to a, a acute painful stimulus so for for people who don't know what serotonin is and how it works what would that have to do with pain uh well we know that that uh, that serotonin or yeah, a release of serotonin is associated with having uh, less um, of an acute pain in the research. So if they, in the research studies, sometimes they'll do is put a hot thermal probe on your arm and they just start to turn it up and ask you to say, when did it turn from heat, a hot sensation into a pain sensation? Mm -hmm. And so serotonin is one of these chemicals that sometimes makes it so that you have to turn it up higher before the person says, ouch. Right. So we know that things like um, dopamine can be involved with this, oxytocin can be involved with this, endorphins can be involved. There's lots of different chemistry of the body. Um, and actually, if we, if we come back to the yoga bit, one of the things I'd say is why does yoga help is because I think yoga turns on multiple mechanisms within the human that actually can help to decrease pain. Right. Um, which I think is really a key thing is because most of us are looking when we have pain, we're looking for the one thing. Right. That's going to make the pain right. go away. But you hear you hear clients saying, a client said this, this to me a bunch of years ago, and it just stuck so well. She said, you know, when my hip's sore, I get in the bathtub and feels better. But when it's really sore, that doesn't work. Mm. I get in the bathtub and I need to get the water to just right temperature, put in Epsom salts. I light a candle, gaze at it. I perform aromatherapy <laughs> and I listen to Enya and the pain gets better. Oh, I love that. Oh my gosh. That is such a great example. Yeah. So, um, so just to, to briefly summarize these in a, a kind of rough and dirty way, you know, serotonin um, is implicated in mood and mood disorders. Um, dopamine is the feel good hormone. Oxytocin is the love and bonding hormone. And so we're getting all of these biochemical changes mm -hmm. that are happening through yoga practice. And I mean, it's very hard to tease apart which aspect of yoga practice is facilitating those changes. And it doesn't matter really if we're using the whole practice of yoga, there are going to be all of these different changes that are happening. And that's just the endocrine system. So, you know, there are changes happening through many different systems mm -hmm. of the body and then across what we would call the koshas that are all involved in pain. So it's like flicking, it's like going into a circuit breaker and like flipping all the switches, right? Right. That's a great analogy. I mean, when this person said this to me, it was so like, oh my gosh, when she gets the pains where she layers together different. Yeah. Using. So she's using sight and right. heat on her body, right? In the water. Um, right. Not sure what the Epsom salts, but the skin is like your biggest sensory organ. So maybe there's an effect through the skin. And there's supposed to be an anti-inflammatory effect from the Epsom salts. Okay. And then um, the, like the candle gazing, that's a meditation technique. 
Right. And there's also, so, but you're using visual as well, right? So you're right. using the visual cortex, the olfactory cortex. And then you're also the heat, like the candle is, in, is imagery for heat. So you're feeling the heat on the body and then it's probably enhanced by looking at a candle, I would imagine. Yeah. And, I, I and think, then the music, yeah, which is so, mood altering. So when we look at yoga, I think this is the way we need to look at it. Yeah. When you look at the research, unfortunately, the what actually I just did a review of a bunch of research about yoga actually for veterans. And it was shocking to read these reports where they're using yoga, but they talked about yoga as if it was exercise. Yes. Or as if it was exercise and mindfulness. Right. Which I think it's really funny because it's like mindfulness is part of yoga. It's like they were, you know, it sounded like they put mindfulness into yoga when sorry there. When yoga is already a mindfulness practice. Yeah. So one of the other big things that I would say that I think really, really helps, and this doesn't matter whether you're doing asana or meditation or, you know, pratyahara, uh, but I think- Which is they, withdraw of the senses, so focusing yeah. inward, yeah. Yeah, so taking the senses inside, I think one of the big things that yoga does is it connects us with our physical self. Hmm. And there's, uh, we could, you know, get into a big, uh, you know, philosophical discussion of why that's so important. But you see this across a human existence, regardless of where the suffering is coming from. Mm -hmm. At some point, you need to be able to get in touch with your physical self to be able to actually turn and look at the source of your pain. So the air cord, so source. Right, right, pain, right, right. Um, and, you know, you, you, we hear this from people like Bessel van der Kolk in terms of the mental health stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Is that this stuff is important when we're suffering. Um, and so yoga has that as well. And part of the reason that it's part of my theory of why it works is because there's a lot of people who have ongoing pain who become really disconnected from their physical self. So this is really interesting, Neil, because so I was just in, we're doing a, a yoga for arthritis book club and we're in chapter three of my book first before we go on to other books. And we were talking about big S self and little S self and the importance of connection and yoga being connection within mind and body, mind, body, spirit, but also connection without, you know, connection of the individual and the cosmos or all that is source, universe, community, culture, mm -hmm. et cetera, that, that those outer forms of connection help us to heal mm -hmm. as well. And so when you're talking about the relationship to the physical self, that's like little s self, and also the relationship to the big s self is healing too. Absolutely. Yeah, or heal in a different way. We need both, I guess. Yeah. I mean the the I mean what we what we get from the Yoga Sutra is the the this idea that you know knowing more about your physical form is mm -hmm. one of the ways to start to realize that you're not just a physical form. Yeah. Understanding nature allows you to understand spirit. Right. Right. And I think that this, this becomes really important and, and to me really important because the medical world has mostly ignored the, the distortions that happen in our sense of our physical self. Hmm. Uh, that um, 
I think a lot about the patients that I've worked with haven't told patient uh, told their medical people. As one of my patients said, they all think I'm lying. I don't want them to think I'm crazy. Mm. Um, and this is a person who, when she actually looked at her hands, or one hand to her looked significantly swollen and larger than the others, other. Um, and to me and everybody else in the world, it didn't look that oh, way. Wow. Um, and so she had sort of let it go. Um, we, we did this really fascinating thing with her. There's a, there's a volume meter, which is basically a thing that holds water mm -hmm. and you fill it right up to the very top and you have a container sort of below and oh, you get a yes. person to stick their hand in. Right. And it how much water is the water. Right. right. And so we did it with the, 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 the hand that felt okay and measured the water and then did it mm -hmm. with the other one. And, and she's still in like this state of like, how can that be? How can it be yeah. wrong? We do it again. And so we then started to talk about how, you know, there is more and more evidence about how ongoing pain can make our body feel too big, too small, mm. small vague. I mean, some people with low back pain, when you ask mm -hmm. them to take their attention to their physical body, which of course yoga asks you to do a lot. Right. Sometimes people take their attention to their low back and they get there and they say, you know, I can feel the pain, but I can't feel my low back. I can feel my mid back. An upper wow. back. I can feel my pelvis, but it's like there's a missing piece in mm. there. I mean, even even the um, uh, the free back. There's a there's a questionnaire called um, yeah no it's not sorry Fremantle the Fremantle back assessment. Mm -hmm. And what, some of the questions in there are you know do you feel like the outline of your body is it's hard to tell where your body ends and begins, mm. um, which is a distortion. So the free mental questionnaires are coming up as, as a recognition of distortions of sense of self. Mm -hmm. Yoga is so great at getting us to reconnect to the physical body, like doing asana does that. Mm -hmm. But then so, so does do things like Pratyahara where you're taking your attention inside to notice right. um, body scans, mindfulness, all these things can really, really help. So you know, I always feel like we could go on all day and talk about every single component of yoga, but right. the one piece I definitely want to make sure that people hear is ritual. Yes. Because I think it's a, it's a piece that's missing in our sort of thinking about pain management is how important it is to do ritual. And I'm not talking about religious rit ritual. Um, in terms of yoga, it would be simply as, you know, you've got a space in your room or in your home where you do the yoga you know, you, you know, mindfully roll out your match, you sort of light a candle, you do all those things at the beginning, at the end of the practice, you take time, you know, in rest and, and integration, you know, for things that integrates, and then you mindfully sort of put things away. That's the bath that you mentioned is also a ritual. Yeah. And, and actually, there's some interesting exploration of the medical encounter as ritual. Exactly. Right. There are all of these parts to the medical encounter and part of why it is effective may be not about the treatment at all, but about the ritual of mm -hmm. seeing a medical provider. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, things like that. And then if we take the step into yoga is often done in a group mm -hmm. and in the pain management world, this again is important to me because We've focused a lot these days on self-care and self-management. And I think the focus on there is good. Yet at the same time, what it's done is it's turned pain management into a lonely, isolated thing. 
Yeah. And that, that we may be missing the fact that the person in front of us may never ever be able to, to regulate their own physiology in this life by themselves. Right. Mm. This person's genetics and their life history may have set themselves up that we can't we can teach them how to do something with them and they can maybe get some response. But the person would actually have a better response if they're in a group. Yeah, right? where we co-regulate. Exactly. Yeah. So did, did you read the book Finding the Mother Tree? Do you know oh, that book? I haven't. I haven't. So it's about how trees do this. So, you know, they have these like root systems and then they have fungi that they are in symbiotic relationship with that connect them to other trees mm -hmm. and they send signals to each other. And like the big trees that have access to more light send nutrients to the smaller trees that are under their canopy. Like they nurture each other. Nice. Um, and when there is a threat, they communicate through chemical signaling to each other about the changes to make in order to endure that threat. They are, you know, existing in community and caring for each other. You know, that's how we would think about it as humans. Um, this is like so built into biology to, to, um, in community like to to nurture the well-being of the community and this emphasis on self-care i agree so empowering and important and facilitating a sense of self-efficacy and not feeling like i am at the women mercy of whatever the medical providers tell me to do but i can actually take ownership and do some things for myself the risk of that is it's on you you take care of you, you know, this like highly individualistic approach mm -hmm. that, you know, I think is very American. I don't know how Canadians feel about that, but it's like, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps exactly. and I'm going to, you know, do all of these things and take care of me. And while that's useful, it also loses that we are com a community of humans and that we can take care of each other. And in this, I, you know, I write about some, the idea of like, um, of utilizing the support that's available to you being something that is very difficult, mm -hmm. at least in our culture for people to do that. It feels like a lack, mm -hmm. um, or some sort of a diminish diminishment of ourselves when we rely on others. Whereas, you know, I think in the same way that there is strength in vulnerability, there is strength in a willingness to utilize available support and then also to give it when you have it to give. Exactly. You know, the, the one of the troubles we're having around this is that some people are calling this co-regulation. Some people are calling it biological synchronization. Mm -hmm. And then there's other people who are calling it autonomic synchrony. <laughs> and okay. I mean, then I actually stumbled on a paper on autonomic synchrony two or three years ago and was just blown away at there just looking at how two people's um, autonomic nervous systems were starting to sync up um, yeah. just when they were together. And of course, you know, if you want to have evidence of autonomic synchrony, just walk beside somebody. You two will start mm. to walk. Your pace will be the same. And if you want to right. watch somebody's autonomic nervous system having all fit, change your pace while you're walking with somebody. Mm. Right. And, and yeah, it just, there's this weird reaction that, that we have with this. 
This is something that I learned when I was a young parent. Um, when my child was emotionally dysregulated, that I could be her nervous system. Like I could be this the regulation that she didn't have because she developmentally didn't know how to regulate herself. And so just by regulating my own breathing, I could facilitate a shift in her breathing. And especially, you know, if I would hold her mm-hmm. and sort of be that container. So um, that was incredibly powerful for me to understand as a parent, but it also, it plays out, you know, it's at, at Maryland University of Integrative Health, we talk a lot about healing presence. And I think that's part of what healing presence is as the provider, as the yoga therapist or health coach or whatever your approach is, that your own self-regulation affects not only the encounter, but the the state inhabited by the person that you're with, right? Yeah, I think that there's part of the, the culture of yoga is that you take on this certain way of using your voice. Yeah. Right. Um, I remember that well, because I was in a class one time where there's this, this yoga teaching student came in um, and he was really early in this stuff and, and his, it was almost frenetic, his nervousness. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, I do not want to go back to this guy's house. <laughs> <laughs> because you sort of walk out and like you need to brush yourself off. Right. But I think, which is know, why we want to center right before we teach, set an intention, whatever it is, so that we are yeah. in the right state. Yeah. So there's there's all those pieces, right? There's the the ritual and the starts and then the voice of the teacher. There's the the you know the care and compassion that you're being guided to do. Within yoga, you know, we talk about the yamas and niyamas, sort of how how we treat ourselves and how we live in the world sort of a general statement around those. But, you you know, we hear language that has to do with contentment and acceptance. We learn, we hear language that has to do with being kind about, you know, starting with more of a middle path. You know, there's so many pieces of yoga that I think, well, it seems to me, you know, the reading of the Yoga Sutra is that the whole Yoga Sutra is about this process of how to suffer less. And, uh, um, you know, I think sort of one of the sort of general statements I'd make that I know there's a lot of holes in, but the idea that this thing that we live in doesn't really care where the suffering came from. Mm. The similarities, whether we in our mind attribute the suffering to our physical body or to a thought or an emotion or something social or world, um, the similarities are huge. Right. I do want to say, as I say that, I'm not saying that we treat somebody who has mental health issue the same as somebody who has like chronic neck pain, but I'm saying that there's a massive overlap yeah. and, and we're still struggling even within the yoga world to bring it back together because there's, you know, we've got yoga for, you know, these musculoskeletal things and we've got yoga for these mental health things yeah. and there's not a lot of even there. Right. Even yoga is getting compartmentalized in the way that you know as as aiming to be a whole person approach that comes from this very holistic philosophy it gets reduced to something similar to 
the healthcare model where, mm -hmm. you know, and my organization, of course, is guilty of this is yoga for arthritis. Now we have a very whole person approach and we're thinking about the whole person experience of arthritis, but there is yoga for depression and yoga for back pain and yoga, right? And so um, when we language it that way, we are suggesting that the yoga is treating this condition when mm. what we're really doing is using the tools of yoga to enhance well-being and reduce suffering for the whole human who happens to be living with this particular condition. Exactly. And I think that the, the name of it helps the person know, well, where should I go? Right, right. Um, and, and know that this actually can be, I guess, of some benefit. But it's the, as you said, it's the, once you get inside it, does it look like it's, you know, because, you know, I tell people that I'm, I work in the, you know, pain care around yoga and people say, well, you know, what kind of yoga do you do? And what they're asking is what asana are, you know, am I doing is, yeah, you know, that's part of it. Movement's part of it, but it's, it's movement. Right. It's not necessarily the or I don't know. I, I suspect this happens to you too, Neil, that oftentimes a journalist will reach out to me for an article and the model of article that they want is can you give me five poses for arthritis in the hands? <laughs> and I have to say, well, <laughs> I could, but what I'd like to do is talk about maybe five ways that yoga practices can help people living with arthritis in their hands. Can yeah. I put in a breathing practice? Can I put in a mindfulness activity? Yeah. And you know, the, um, the one thing I was just thinking about too, is that uh, one other thing I'd like to share with, with the listeners who have, um, especially those who have rheumatoid arthritis or, or arthritic conditions where there is that sort of active inflammation that comes up and then, you know, sort of the remission stuff and then, it, you know, flares up again, is that, um, Sometimes what the medical system has done is taught us that in those situations that when you're in an active flare-up, you know how much activity to do or your guide for how much activity is based on the pain, the redness, the heat, and the swelling. So they're, they're asking you, what they're actually saying is don't just listen to the pain. You need to listen to the pain, the heat, the redness, the swelling, which from a pain science point of view is really a wise thing to do because pain's not an accurate indication all by itself of how much to do. But unfortunately, the medical system still, and some of the arthritis societies, at least in Canada, still promotes of when you're not in an acute flare-up, use pain as your guide, which is really sort of odd because pain's not a very accurate guide. And if you stop every time the pain increases, you're probably going to limit your recovery. And so part of what yoga has inspired us to do is to say, well, what other sort of alarm systems could you pay attention to? You know, pain is a protective mechanism telling you, hey, maybe you need to be careful here, not telling you it's damage, right? So what else might say, hey, maybe this is far enough to go and we can, you know, use yoga or just think of interoception. We can actually listen to our breath, not the sound of our breath, but listen to what's happening in our breath or notice what's happening in our breath. We can notice what's happening in our muscle tension of our body. Um, and we can also notice what's happening in our mind. And so we put together this, this sort of movement guideline of asking people that, that if you're not in an acute flare-up and you move and there's an increase in pain, you sort of go to that edge of the pain and ask yourself, do you feel safe here? And do you think you'll be okay later? Which is to check in with your mind to sort of, you know, are you okay there or, or is it alive? 
and that's also, you know, I talk about safety as being both physical and psychological. You know, even if I'm not doing physical damage, do I feel psychologically safe? And sometimes that means not pushing into the discomfort. Yeah. And so you sort of go there and if you can say, yeah, I think I'm safe, I think I'm going to be okay later, then the next thing is, well, can you calm your breath? Because if you can't calm your breath, your body is sending massive signals into your nervous system that we think are yelling, danger, 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 danger. And the same with your muscles. If you can't decrease the muscle tension that you don't need in the moment, like if you can't have any impact at all, obviously your body is sending big messages that are saying there's danger here. And it sort of works with this danger safety model, right? Is that, you know, when we're not in acute flare-up, because pain's not an, active, an accurate indication of how much, could we actually use some other things as well to give us a better idea of how hard to push? Because if you do something and you increase, you get to the pain and you calm your breath and the pain gets better, or you calm your body and the pain decreases, then you know it's okay to push a little bit more. But if you get to that spot and you try to calm your breath and calm your body and calm your mind, and you're like, I'm, I can't, I'm in a place where I can't do that, then that's probably, you know, it's more information of maybe that's far enough for now. Right. Anyway, just I, there is there is massive hammering happening outside my door. So hopefully Kylie can do some masterful editing of this so it's not super loud. But Neil, um, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the book um, that you co-edited with Shelley and Marlisa. What was the, why did you want to write that book? And what could people, what could people get out of it? And then we can also tell them about the webinar series that goes along with it. Yeah. So yoga and science and pain care. So I had the honor of being able to co-edit and do some co-authoring in it with, with Shelley Prosco and Marlisa Sullivan and your chapter, of course, and many others. Um, so there's, um, the book was trying to do an integrate integration of looking at pain and pain science, but then looking at pain from yoga lenses, um, looking at the research around it, looking about the pain biology around it, um, even looking at, uh, in one of the chapters I wrote, looking at the idea of yoga as an educational agent, because we know that, that there's evidence that says that when we educate people in pain about pain, that it can help people to find the right recovery. Um, but of course, one of the things I see that is yoga is actually an opportunity for you to have repeated experiences that are inconsistent with your previous determination that movement is dangerous. Ah, uh, yeah. And so, or, or that you can't, the other thing is it teaches you is that it teaches you that you can influence pain, right? Right. Yeah. From every aspect of your existence. And so anyway, um, the, the book sort of goes through that with some unexpected, you know, um, information around pain and around how we can use yoga. So we then, we then um, uh, have a, a blog series going on right now. So, um, so we have different people who decided they want to write actually a blog on each chapter. So we're going through that. Um, Embodia um, is where you can find that. And there's also a webinar series. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So where each, each of the, each of the authors talked a little bit more about what was what was happening or what they were what they were discussing in the chapter so it's like a course or or it's like a book club right yeah um so we'll link to all of those things in the show notes the book the um webinar series and then are, are the blogs all in embody as well 
Yeah, so Embody is taking care of those. I think we're just on chapter four now with the blogs. Okay. Um, and those are really, really interesting too. I, you know, when it was proposed, I thought, hey, this sounds like an interesting idea. But the sort of the, the specific takes that people are getting on some of the key information of the chapters is, is really quite fantastic. We've, we've given people a full realm, just, you know, you're a writer, write a blog on this. Um, so it, it's actually cool. Really so it's interesting to see what they come away with. Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't even know about the blog series. So I look forward to checking that out. Um, mm -hmm. And so, Neil, I want to bring up virtual reality because the last time I saw you, we were at a conference together and you had a table there and you had a virtual reality device that I got to try on. And you're using that for pain care. So, can you talk a little bit about? what that right. is and how it works sure so um we're using virtual reality to provide people with an embodied educational experience so let me tell you about that first is that um most of us when we learn something new what we need to have is sort of you know we sort of learn it academically or cognitively okay there's something new i understand that Yet it's you, the lived experience. You need to use that that information in something in life that actually reinforces and, and proves to you that what you learned was actually good and true. Um, and of course, there are some people in the world who um, they need to have that physical embodied experience that this is true before they'll even listen to an explanation of why. And then there's other people who will not do the activity until you explain to them why the activity might work. And then you, right? But the thing is that pretty much all of us need both. And so what virtual reality does- Neil, I, I feel like you just described my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's very funny. You know, just understanding that we we learn differently. We, you know, and some people are ready to like jump right in, just like, let's do it. And then you can explain it later. Or like, I'm not stepping into this until I understand everything about it. <laughs> So the, the virtual reality could work for both populations, right? Right. So within this virtual reality, there's actually there, Lorimer Mosley, his avatars in there, his voice is in there. I mean, for everyone, this is a, a pain science, um, a pain, yeah, pain science researcher. He's a physical therapist in Australia, um, has done a lot of work around educating people around pain, but also done a lot of other amazing work and and help to bring a lot of money into research around pain in Australia as well. Anyway, so he's there, his avatar's there, and he's speaking about it. So he's he's talking about it up to the person who's got the virtual reality headset on about pain. Um, and one of the benefits of that is you actually get to have an expert. Uh, because if I'm your clinician and I'm explaining pain to you, sometimes your experience could be, well, I've never heard this before. Could, is it really true? And so if we have like the expert in there, um, that sort of adds some benefits. Um, we have had a few people in Canada who's like, why, like, why aren't you in there? Why is it an Australian guy? But anyway, this sort of, but you know, it's the expertise part that's the important part. But also within it, what they can do is they can provide you with experiences that start to tell you about pain, especially pain as a protection mechanism. Yeah. As as an example, imagine that you're you've got the virtual reality headset on, and they build a campfire in front of you. Right. So you I remember doing this part. 
Yeah. And they ask you, you know, to put your hands down like you're warming them at the fire. And, and you can sort of, some people will get a sense of almost warmth. Right. Um, and then they also say, you know, you know, it's not real. Go ahead and put your hand like in the fire. Right. And you can feel some resistance to do this sometimes. So there, there was also like um, you were at the edge of a cliff. Right. So, yeah, that's the other. Part. <laughs> yeah. So the fire is an intent to sort of get you prepared. Uh, because mm -hmm. the cliff thing um, is that at one point they say, okay, just put your hands in front of your face and clap. When you clap, you know, standing on the edge of a 200 foot drop cliff down to the ocean and rocks. Yeah. Um, what you automatically feel is your protection mechanisms turning on in a big, big way. Yeah. And so, Even though, you know, I mean, I'm standing in like a conference room on a carpet <laughs> with a wall in front of me. Like, I know I'm perfectly safe. And yeah, I feel the nervousness of being at the edge of that cliff. Right. And so then they slide you back four or five feet and you can feel things calm down. They yeah. build a whole, you know, waist high fence and you can feel things calm down more. Yeah. So the idea is to give you, the person in the virtual reality, an experience of how our protection mechanisms happen automatically right. and how they can shift. But then what they do- And, and how they can be- based on perception rather than reality right exactly yeah and then what they do in it is now they've changed it from when you did it is they sort of pan back so you see the cliff from like a couple hundred yards away and there you are standing out near the end and then they push you like way back so you're like a couple hundred yards away from the the edge and they say you know they're talking about how it could be that your protection mechanism is protecting you there mm. all that protection you felt on the edge of the cliff right protecting you way back there. And like that gets to what we were talking about, like being in a yoga practice and where you feel like you have reached your edge and you're not going to go any further could be way back from the cliff, right? And so how to know, okay, I feel uncomfortable. I feel a little challenged, but I know it's okay for me to walk a little bit closer. Yes. And part of what they're, you know, part of what we're trying to get at with this um, is that one of the things that a lot of people with chronic pain do is learn to tolerate pain and ignore the signals from their body so that, you know, they do. Right. The, you know, you'll go the opposite of like fear yeah. avoidance, right? Yeah, which is a whole other weird topic, right? Because fear avoidance is talked about as if it's like the thing. But we see so many people with chronic pain are actually pain endurers that when something mm. hurts, you'll just keep pushing through. Hmm. I, I know that people who have chronic pain, everybody has chronic pain is going to be fearful of something. But a lot of people with chronic pain, their approach to activity in general is to push through the pain. I've just got to do it. And, yeah. and I, I find that, you know, when we're starting to develop awareness, when in yoga, I ask people to pay attention to sensation, people who are endurers don't want to stop and pay attention because their strategy for managing life with arthritis is to ignore it and just do it anyway. Yeah. So somehow we need to get people uh, get people curious about whether another option might give them a different outcome. I think that's the big thing. And th I think that's part of what I like about the VR thing is that it allows us to give the, the information in a bit of a more gentle way than just talking about it. Um, that embodied experience somehow, I think, increases more curiosity in more people. 
than just learning the information uh, cognitively. So what we're saying is that, that, that what we hope people will do is start to learn to pay attention to the signals when they're quieter and say, if I can stop here, you know, <clears throat> what would that do? And we know physiologically, if you stop there, what you're not gonna do is teach your protective mechanisms that you don't listen, right? The question I always say to people is, what would a sophisticated protection mechanism do if you don't listen to it? And of course the correct answer is- Get louder, <laughs> right? right? Or expand or do something, right, right, right. Right. make it feel worse. Right. Um, and, and, and the person who's doing this, why are they doing it? Because it always worked before. Yeah. And chances are also because this person sitting, you know, me, I'm saying this as a clinician, this person sitting in front of me may have the strength of will to persevere in the midst of horrible, horrible stuff. They've learned right. how to do that. It was right. a really great thing to learn how to do in life yet it doesn't serve you in the chronic pain realm to, to get better. It serves you to yeah. get something done in the moment, but it doesn't serve you to actually improve your ease of movement or decrease pain. I think, I think we see this oftentimes, Neil, in caregivers, which I don't know if you all call them carers, but people who are responsible for the care of others oftentimes feel like they don't have the luxury it feels like a luxury to pay attention to your pain signaling mm -hmm. Absolutely. when mouths have to be fed and you know whatever else has to happen um so if someone is interested in this vr technology is it not ready for prime time is there anything is there a place they can go to learn more um there isn't really yet so that this okay. this, this company is doing this amazing job and they're testing out in a whole bunch of different places around the world we we um, ran into some um, stalls in Canada with with uh, insurance companies. Oh, okay. And I think that one of the things when people hear VR, sometimes they're thinking of you know the VR stuff where you're gaming or where right. you're, you know, where you could feel nauseated or you know mm, stuff like and that. And so they're worried about safety risks. Exactly. Yeah. So let's slow it down a little bit. Okay. Um, but anyway, I, I know that. Um, they're reaching out to a lot of different places in the world. They're basically taking this evidence-informed way to educate people about pain, right? Mm -hmm. So it's shown to be beneficial. And they're putting it into a VR application to uh, attempt to get a better outcome. Um, and as a clinician who's tested it out a whole lot and used it a lot of people, um, I'm really convinced that it, it's a great, great way to help people understand pain better. So you'll keep us posted. If yes. you learn more about, so um, Neil, is there anything else that you're working on now that you want to share with our audience? Um, wow. Well, we've got two different research studies going on about uh, knee osteoarthritis. Okay. One, one of them is, is just comparing um, the sort of standard exercise routine that you do for people who have knee OA um, to more of a bit of a yogified approach to it so we've brought in we brought in the the breath work and the interoception and noticing stuff there so neil right now i am involved with a clinical trial in australia that compares the yoga for arthritis program to a standard physiotherapy program for knee osteoarthritis we have some early data, but it's not yet published. So I'm interested to see how your findings compare to ours. 
Yeah, so we, we finished the feasibility study and we're going to start the RCT this fall. Okay. Um, there's another study that I think is even more cool. There's some um, transcranial stimulation of the brain. Oh, yeah. So we are actually going to be looking at, uh, again, people with knee OA. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be comparing the effects of transcranial stimulation of the motor cortex. Okay, because I've seen vagus nerve, like transcranial stimulation that aims to affect the vagus nerve in order to impact pain. Right. So, so this, this is a different approach. Yeah. So this is going after the motor cortex, which has some um, research. That part of the study, I don't know so much about. Okay. Um, but the reason I'm excited about it is it's got some evidence to show that it has benefit. But what we're going to actually do is have the brain stimulation uh, plus yoga. Ooh. Which is just brain stimulation, which to me is important because most of the research um, stacks yoga up against the medical system rather than right. what I think in my belief is. It should be, what would happen if we added yoga? It's right. It's not an either or. It should be a yes and. <laughs> yeah, so right. If we add this, do we get benefits? Right. Because that's probably the way it's going to roll out in other places. So I'm yeah. sort of excited about, about that piece. Very um, cool. We're, um, my, um, my wife, who's a Swami of Kriya Yoga, um, mm -hmm. and a pain care person, is put, well, the two of us are... are um, working with a publisher on a card deck that'll be around pain, pain care. Oh, neat. So, um, yeah. <clears throat> and we're probably going to have a companion book. We're trying to see if the publishing company will go with it. The, the, you know, the card deck, you can't have a lot of information on the card. Right. So you could have a booklet that goes in the deck. There will be a little book, of it, but then what I also want to do is have an actually companion book that would have a full script of the technique, but also mm -hmm. talk about the theory of why it would help people with who have mm -hmm. chronic pain. And if there's science to try to include whatever science is there at this point. Because um, I think that that's the, what people are starting to recognize is that yoga can really help, yet they're not sure how to use the aspects of yoga when a person has, has chronic pain. How do you sort of learn the techniques and how do you put them together? Nice. Well, thank you so much, Neil. We have covered a whole lot of territory. Talking with you is always fun and stimulating, and I hope that our audience has gotten a lot out of it. If you think of anything else that you want to share in our show notes, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I hope that all of our listeners and viewers have gotten something of this that they can take away and incorporate into their own personal arthritis management or the work that they do with others. So thank you again. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us in the yoga room. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider liking, following, and leaving a review. You can find more information and resources on our website at arthritis.yoga and on our social media channels. Join our newsletter to learn about our latest offerings and please share with anyone who might benefit. Until our next episode, we wish you peace and well-being. May your light shine so bright that all the world is better for your being in it.